Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mode News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. We have a special guest with us today. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think you will be, too. His name is Mohammed Yunus. He's the editor-in-chief of Gallup. You might be familiar with Gallup. We cite them often on this podcast, on the newsletter, on the Instagram account. Gallup really is the gold standard globally when it comes to polling. Now, polls, of course, especially recently, are controversial. Mohammed and I talk about that in this conversation. We talk about the media, polling, uh, the rap they get, some deserved, some undeserved. It's one of the top questions I really get almost every week. Polls, why do you use them? How can they be trusted, especially in an age where people aren't even picking up their phones anymore? How could a couple thousand people really give us a gauge of what is happening in our country and around the world. Well, Mohammed is here to explain that. I think he puts it in really basic terms, really understandable terms that you'll enjoy, that when chosen well, a good poll can really help you take the pulse of the nation and the world. You'll learn a lot in this conversation about how Gallup conducts polling in more than 140 countries around the world, even places like Russia, Afghanistan, where you would think it might be hard to get a gauge for how people actually feel. Well, my guest today is going to explain how they do just that, how they get honest answers on all things from politics to the economy to mental health. And when these polls come out, they help policymakers, they help businesses make big decisions, they help nonprofits understand the masses. Mohammed Yunus is a super smart guy. I think you will all get a lot out of this conversation. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast exclusive content over on the members only Instagram account and exclusive podcast feed. By joining Mo News Premium, you become part of the Mo News team. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, help us sustain what we're doing, grow what we're doing, and support independent journalism. And then the added plus, of course, is all the extra content. You can access Mo News Premium for just $7 a month right now, $70 a year. We have a special deal going right now that is two months free for the annual package. You can check it out right now over at mo.news slash premium. Again, mo.news slash premium. With that, here's today's conversation. All right, so I'm so happy to be welcoming the editor-in-chief of the polling firm Gallup, Mohammed Yunus. Uh, for over a decade, he has been leading some of Gallup's largest global and regional studies. So he's been involved in their polling abroad as well as analysis domestically. Uh, he's involved in some of their newest initiatives as far as analytics. Mohammed, I, I took a poll, albeit an unscientific one, among this community, and they wanted to hear from someone in polling. So here we are. Here we are. And coincidentally, another Mo on the scene. So this is officially the first time I'm being interviewed by somebody who also goes by Mo. I was going to say, and I think this is the first Mo we've had as a guest on the Mo News podcast. So Mo Squared. Mo Squared, exactly. I think if this goes well, there might be a show for us. Hey, man, the pressure's all on me, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So in the lead up to this, uh, Mo has been sending me a whole bunch of polling that Gallup has done. So it'll take sort of a pulse of America on a few different topics. We've also discovered as we were talking in advance, we have a number of things in common, including uh, family and growing up both in the US and in the Middle East. So we make it to that. Mo, also, as we speak, this is a big week in presidential politics. Uh, so, you know, we'll get to all things 2024. But, you know, Gallup is involved in so much more than that. And when we were speaking briefly in advance, you were talking about this firm founded nearly 90 years ago, Uh, becoming a way for leaders to understand the voice of the people. Uh, The reason why I love having you and and Gallup and and people who follow this podcast, follow what we're doing on Instagram, know that you often see 
Gallup polling. It's considered a gold standard when it comes to polling. It was a go-to during my time in network news. It uh, gives you a sense of, of really what's happening uh, here at home and globally. But I want to begin there with kind of big picture, Mohammed, the the role of Gallup, how Gallup, what Gallup does, yeah. um, and a bit of history, because I found that fascinating. What is Gallup and why do we exist? In the 1930s, there was a gentleman named uh, George Gallup, and his passion was really statistics and sampling. He wanted to figure out a way to ask a smaller number of people a question and be able to project it to the larger population. Um, he was a social researcher. He was a journalist. He was obsessed with the fact that leaders seem to be having a conversation. It's so fascinating. We're talking about this and the debt ceiling is happening down the street. That leaders were having conversations about policy that didn't really involve public opinion in a scientific, reliable way. The man on the street, the woman on the street, their voice, the way they were living their lives, the challenges they faced, he felt were not being adequately considered and reported on um, to those who are making decisions. So he set out to find a way to really prove his sampling method worked. And he believed it worked, but he, he was really on a search for how can I gather folks around me and get the community, the public to really confirm this. And he used presidential elections um, with that dichotomous outcome, often between two options here in the US, as the testing ground really to do that. And at the time, um, his first uh, you know, forecast of, of elections really grounded him as being the best at the time, the most accurate at the time. There were a lot of organizations trying to forecast elections. They were primarily based on um, magazines with subscribers mm. and asking those subscribers who they plan to vote for. Of course, you know this, Mo, and your audience knows this. That's a really cool way to get interesting information. In terms of how representative that is, it's not going to be very helpful if you're trying to go beyond subscribers to that magazine. Right. If you're trying to get a gauge, take a pulse of America, you're already taking a subset of a population if you're only looking at subscribers of a certain publication. Exactly. So he really was able to crack the code on that and became famous for forecasting these outcomes. He was extremely successful um, in our uh, 90 plus year history. We've only really came out to the wrong forecast twice. And I'd love to talk to you also about our last uh, foray into that and why we decided that forecasting presidential outcomes wasn't really where we wanted to spend our next 90 years. Um, but really, going back to George Gallup, he really used that as a platform. Um, he was very successful at that. But all of his speeches, which are all documented, it's fascinating to read what he was saying back in the 40s and 50s and 70s. Um, his passion was about reporting on the will of the people. And one of his sort of most famous quotes is epigraph, if you will, was if democracy is about the will of the people, somebody should go out and find what that will is. And that was really his life's mission. Um, it continues to be our mission today at Gallup. In the 1980s, uh, Dr. Gallup passed away. But before he did, he was very intent on conveying uh, sort of this responsibility and mission to an organization that could carry forth that purpose. Um, and around the 1980s, a, a survey research organization from the Midwest uh, ended up acquiring Gallup. Um, and Do Dr. Gallup's two sons actually uh, were heavily involved in the rest of Gallup all the way through the 90s uh, and were some of the most prolific uh, social scientists we had in the company. So today, Gallup is an employee-owned consulting firm that uses data 
public opinion research, all kinds of data to try to understand how society is changing and who can best benefit from getting insight, empirical-based insight on that change. So whether that's, you know, working from home and hybrid work and why people love it and why it's, you know, changing the way we live to who Americans think is the greatest enemy of the United States to, uh, you know, tracking three of the sustainable development goals for the United Nations and the international community. We're now using public opinion data and really data science at a, at a larger level to try to understand how can you bring numbers? How can you quantify how a life is lived accurately in a reliable way and in a way that isn't pushing for an agenda, isn't funded by a interest group, um, isn't necessarily doing it for one party or the other. That was a really big part of his mission is, you know, if you want to be taken seriously as an objective source of information, you kind of have to walk the walk. Yeah, industry. that's something really important for people to keep in mind. Uh, not all polls are equal scientifically. Not po all polls are equal in terms of agenda or lack of agenda. And we've entered an era, I mean, even as I've been covering presidential politics the past 20 years, where there's just yes. more and more partisan polling firms, and they'll put out their numbers, and they'll get picked up in the media, and the media might not necessarily characterize them as, you know, they'll, some reporters don't know the difference, and they'll just be like, oh, there's this poll out there. Well, that's a poll by a Republican firm or by a firm paid for by a certain candidate that wants to showcase a certain agenda. Um, and it's not Absolutely. hard to manipulate the data. Wait, you mentioned the two presidential elections in history that Gallup got wrong, uh, one in our lifetime, and then what was the previous one? The other one was 1948. It was uh, Harry S. Truman's showdown with uh, Thomas Dewey. And um, of course, you remember, Mo, the big headlines that Dewey was going to win. It was the I headline the next the morning. <laughs> it was the morning that we the figured out Truman won, and the uh, newspapers went to print the night before. Uh, seeing the numbers and based on the previous polls that Dewey was going to be the next president. And what's, fa you know, what's really fascinating about um, that is back in 1948, the story then was, this is the end of polling. You can't trust the polls. Um, the one I was alive during was really the Romney-Obama. And it was actually a really critical moment in exactly what you're talking about. Can we trust polls? Do polls really represent what the public will is showing us um, or telling us? And can we really guess how people are going to vote? The answer really is, yeah, we can. It's just getting harder and harder to do so. Um, primarily because of um, human behavior, primarily because of trying to build a likely voter model in an environment where voters are voting in very different ways than they used to before. Different people who don't usually vote traditionally, historically, are getting more involved in the process. So there are really structural reasons why it's really hard, but you can still do it. Um, the reason we stepped away from it really was, and it's fascinating, Mo, that you were in the industry exactly at the time when this started happening, where there was a shift from a few really reliable organizations that really kind of held each other accountable on methodology and what was a responsible way to report public opinion, fading into an era where a lot of aggregators of polls really became very um, established. And yeah, followed. so there's a few of these. There's so, uh, Politics 538. There's Real Clear Politics. There's a few that put together averages of many polls. And what you ended, what we ended up with collectively, really in, in this space, is um, an environment where we're putting together apples and oranges. We're we're at averaging polls together that were captured differently using different methodologies representing different populations of um, the American public. And we were kind of, 
you know, making a little smoothie and saying, this is the prediction based on my modeling. It became very hard, really much more complicated to take apart. How is that modeling generated? What are the factors that you've put into it as a researcher? What are the variables you're relying on? How consistent are the data points you're actually comparing? Um, what are the time periods of when you're asking people these questions? It really did uh, kind of spread very thin over a lot of really critical statistical rigor that was um, relied upon in this space in you know just forecasting elections and the news around it. Um, so we ended up in a place where there were the loudest voices really prevailed. It also obviously happened at a time when news content and how news was delivered and the kind of news that succeeds with viewers really changed as well, um, where we kind of entered this clickbait era, um, sensational headlines. And we're talking about a 24-hour news cycle really heating up, and you just got to feed the beast, so to speak, you know, and you're the social media era where everything just goes up on Twitter immediately. And uh, that's where all the journalists live. And so then that'll dictate their storylines. And so it's all this cycle that feeds itself. What's was really fascinating to me, Mo, is like, you are super in the know. And when we talked on the phone, you were like, yeah, I remember the the Gallup Daily tracking poll. And absolutely, like it for about six years, we were tracking daily what Americans thought. We were polling over a thousand Americans every single day. It was as a researcher, it was absolutely awesome to have. Yeah, so so, much data. so we were waking up every morning in journalism. I checked the daily tracking poll. I was like, oh, Romney's up one point. Oh, Obama's down one point. You know, etc. It's went over a few cycles. And one of the things we really learned through that process is, outside of that lead up right to the election, not a lot was changing in the daily tracking poll. It was a lot of um, slow change over time, and it was a really important that coupled really with. The, the environment that was happening in forecast and polling, we really had a lot of soul searching to come back to what is our mission as an organization? How do we continue to deliver on being the source for people to, to come to that's not biased, can be trusted, is transparent about what people think? And it really didn't seem like the space where we could add value anymore. Um, and what's fascinating to me is to watch so many other organizations now really follow in that path where um, highly highly respected, established organizations are realizing I can add so much more value, um, whether it's news or public opinion or whatever, outside of this immediate sort of hysteria-driven partisan news cycle. We see it happening now with the debt Mm -hmm. ceiling uh, and the coverage around it. It's really fascinating to see how there's there's a stream of content that's really about personalities and what they said last. And then there's a stream of news content and reporting that's really about what's this going to mean for industries, for individuals. Um, and I think all around us now, no matter what your trade is, no matter what content you're creating, we're all challenged with this. More is not more. And sometimes breaking things down um, and providing less that's more succinct and focused is better. And that's really where we've been trying to... And just to put a button on 2012, so your final tracking poll, at least the based on my research, was... 49-48, Romney uh, with the edge over Obama. The results of the actual election, though, on election night in the aftermath was Obama winning by about 4%, 51-47, and dominating the uh, electoral vote that night. Absolutely. And um, what's fascinating also about that is after that, what we did is we created a Blue Ribbon Commission where we gathered basically everybody who was 
contributing at the top level to the polling industry, whether you are a journalist or a statistician, a researcher, of uh, you know our friends at Pew, our friends at NORC, we brought everybody together and really had a study session um, that was multiple volumes long. We tried to understand why that happened um, and produced a report and in detail drew out why the outcome came to be that way and what we could have changed for it not to be that way. But of course, Mo, what's fascinating is nobody covered that other than the data nerds who I endear, love dearly. But really for the news cycle and for the public, it's like polls are wrong. Yeah. The polls were wrong. And that narrative has And that's been reinforced. Until today, even that's they, been reinforced by several cycles now, wrong. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'd love to, you know, we talked about this earlier. I'd love to unpack that too. Like, are the polls wrong? It depends on which right. polls, right? It really depends on what you're talking about. I'm a huge, I, I don't know you well enough yet, Mo, but I'm a huge music fan. I'm a huge Wu-Tang mm-hmm. fan. And one of the things uh, the RZA used to always say was, you got to read the label. And you do. You really have to look behind the product and look into how was this information gathered? Who does it represent? And only then can you begin to say, can I trust the polls? What's been happening is a lot of us have uh, been consuming news media that will cover one off or two or three state polls right. and really create a narrative in the news cycle that the Republicans are going to take over the Democrats, you know, the red wave. We're all waiting for the red wave. And in reality, it, you know, politics is super local in this country. And if you're drawing national conclusions from not so representative state polls, absolutely you're going to conclude that the polls weren't accurate. But in terms of national polls and in terms of RDD phone polling, it's pretty well established for those of us who have looked into it that actually they are pretty accurate. Um, and they have been uh, across the board, whether it's in presidential elections or in midterm elections. Um, now, using those polls, right? By say, well, when I say accurate, what do I mean? I essentially mean that are the data similar to what actually happened among people who voted? Now, that's a different exercise than forecasting an election and saying, this is who's going right. to win. It's that an important requires, distinction, by the way. There's a poll and then there's forecasting. And I think voting. a lot of the people are buying what the forecasters are saying and the forecasters get it wrong, right? In the same way a weather forecaster gets it wrong when they're like, it's going to rain and it doesn't rain or the opposite. And it's sort of how the political forecasters who are dominating the media landscape are uh, doing their thing. It's also happening at a time when trust in news in general right. is collapsing, right? So you now, we, we've kind of laid out this whole horrible swirl of challenges as to why um, there's this narrative out there that polls aren't working or polls are broken. Um, but, you know, at Gallup, every day we are processing, analyzing, and reporting on data from millions of interviews we're doing across the world. And so many of them, um, on so many levels, prove that polling is working. I mean, one of the, I know you, Mo, like me, you're an international affairs uh, uh, obsessed mm-hmm. person because it was brought upon us, not because we were interested <laughs> in it. Because we had but, passports at a young age and went back and forth. Yeah, exactly. But one of the most fascinating things to me has been, you know, polling the world and figuring out like what actually is useful to compare across countries, cultures, economies, languages, etc. One of the things we've discovered is life evaluation, how people evaluate their own lives is a very delicate and accurate thing if you do it properly. Why? Because It's fundamentally a relative assessment of what your life was like five years ago and what your life will be like in the next five years. That assessment works if you are 
I mean, you could just imagine the international situations. You can you can be in Sweden and driving a uh-huh. Beamer and make that assessment. You can be in Cairo and, you know, on a donkey in a cart selling fruit and make that assessment. It really is a universal thing. One of the things that really fascinated us as we looked back to things like the Arab uprisings, Donald Trump's election, um, the Euromaidan revolution in Ukraine, a lot of these global developments took place at a time when people's own life evaluation in those countries, in our data, was completely crashing. So it is super sexy and interesting to ask people like what they think about the debt ceiling, who's, who's responsible for the debt ceiling. But what we've learned is that over time, what's actually much more prescient and really also intuitively useful as a social researcher that's trying to get ahead of the curve and understand what is the next big thing. Tracking how people evaluate their lives on all dimensions is actually proven to be one of the most useful and um, most accurate indicators of where things are going. And we can get into the countries in detail. Yeah, but- yeah. I, I'd, I'd like to go global here for a second. You know, we'll come back to things here in the States, uh, presidential politics, etc. But, you know, Gallup is conducting polls. I think you told me 140 countries 98% of the world's populations, something you were heavily involved, uh, that you're heavily involved in at Gallup. Uh, one thing we were talking about beforehand, and I'd love to start here, actually, is, you know, you're talking about that you're doing polling in Afghanistan. Um, and you're doing polling in countries where people don't generally feel free to share their opinion, especially if it's critical of the government. How do you do that? And I'm thinking of countries like Russia, like China, uh, like the aforementioned Afghanistan. How does Gallup go about that? We do it differently everywhere. Um, So obviously, the local reality in the country determines a series of things. First of all, everything we're doing, we started this in 2005. Everything we do all over the world is done by local people in local languages. So they're survey research experts in country that we train on our methodology. They gather the data. We have a series of quality control checks. I mean, from the methodological side, all that's laid out and folks can read about that. But conceptually, like how do you, you know, how can you ask people in Afghanistan how, how they feel about the Taliban? <laughs> exactly. And the reality is, Mo, you don't. You don't. You don't ask questions that you know can't be answered honestly in that mm-hmm. context. And part of uh, our really what we've contributed to this space is building an institutional knowledge of years and years of testing questions in places. I hate to say places like in countries like Afghanistan. Um, and in countries, you know, like Sweden, of what do, what does a person in this country think of when I say the word X? Does this concept really translate when I ask a question about why? Um, I'll give you a really good example. At one point, we were really focused in the whole war on terror, you know, uh, Muslim world, Western world, debacle, clash of civilizations. We were really focused on perceptions of the West. And in Pakistan, what we discovered is that people actually thought you meant like the Western part of their Mm. region, not the West, the US. Um, Another really challenging question, and actually one we're reporting on soon is, we've just now hit the 50% plus mark on our global metric of people saying where I live is a good place to live for gay and lesbian Mm. people. But when you think about Afghanistan, you really can't ask that question in Afghanistan. Because in some contexts in Afghanistan, that's actually asking people if a crime is being committed down the street from them. So all of these contextual, very country-specific nuances, we take into account by working with people in country um, that understand what is and what is not possible. But one thing that has 
fascinated me is, you know, we're talking about presidential approval earlier and, and U.S. polling. One thing that is consistent across all of these countries, um, and really when I say these countries, I particularly mean the global south, poorer, less developed countries, is response rates are th through the mm -hmm. roof. They are absolutely through the roof. People want to say, um, want to talk to our interviewers. They want to express. There's not a feeling that feel if they say that things are bad or things suck or they're hungry or the economy is bad, that there will be ramifications for them with the government. There is, it depends on how you ask the question. So if you want to ask about their own yeah. lives in the vast majority of places in the world, you know, you don't go to jail for complaining that your life sucks. So even in Afghanistan, people feel like I can say I'm hungry. I can say things are bad. Well, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the questions we, and we've, we've released all these data at news.gallup.com. Check it out. It's one of our most important. Wait, say that website again. Um, news.gallup.com. It's where we release all of our own content. Um, but a lot of this was picked up by so many other sources. Um, I won't mention, but it really was one of the most important pieces of work we did this year, which is our work on Afghanistan and sharing what are kind of the top things that Afghan citizens have experienced or how have their perceptions changed since the Taliban have taken over. And we ask about whether women are treated with respect and dignity. And those data are pretty clear that people are answering honestly. Uh, we also ask about whether people want to leave their country permanently. And Afghanistan is one of the highest rates in the world uh, of people that say they want to so leave. So they feel comfortable saying that. And how do you pull women in Afghanistan about women's rights? So in a, in a, Yes. So in a lot of uh, countries where there are a lot of gender um, restrictions around interaction, we do gender matching. So we'll have women interview women and men interview men. Um, we also take extreme care to not interview respondents in an environment where there are other people in the room that could potentially, you know, impact their response. So if we're doing uh, a study on domestic violence, for example, even though we're not necessarily doing that in Afghanistan, we're not going to ask, you know, a one spouse about it in front of the other spouse. So we there are all of these um, very thorough and rigorously tested techniques around every single survey we conduct because the topic of the survey also determines what is sensitive and what is not sensitive and what you can and can't say. And based on the country, based on the technology in that country, are you? is it a combination of in-person, written, mail, phone, yes. uh, online, like... How does it work country by country? Our kind of general rule is, first of all, everything we do in country and the way we build our primary sampling units, if you will, is based on the most recent census data. So they're really aimed at being nationally representative samples of these countries. So we can really say this is what, you know, people in Mali think. It's not just the cities. It's not just people who can um, speak a certain language, et cetera. Everything's done in local languages. In a lot of countries, it means a lot of languages, which we do. We translate and back translate, et cetera. But a, a general rule is if there's cell phone penetration in 80% of the country or more, we tend to do a phone poll. If there's not, we'll do an in-person, face-to-face. Do, do, are, are people in we other also, countries more uh, willing to pick up uh, random numbers than here in the U.S.? Um, well, I mean, the U.S. Is, and developed economies generally tend to have mm -hmm. the lowest rate of people picking up random numbers. Um, so yeah, I mean, to generalize, yes, but of course, you know, every country is kind of different. Staying global here, uh, any other interesting trend lines you're seeing? Uh, the last number, the 50%, it's a good place to live number struck my attention. Anything else that you're seeing that gives you a sense of uh, how, if there's larger trend lines, I mean, it's 
it's hard to extrapolate just in America, but globally, any other interesting trend lines you're seeing? Yeah, and I, it, I'm just grinning because I, it's amazing how people are like, what are you learning across the world? It's like, man, it's a lot of people. <laughs> right, you're like, you're like well, you know, if you live in Sudan right now or Ukraine, you have a very different view than exactly. living in Singapore. Exactly. Um, but fascinatingly enough, um, one of the mega trends really that we found in the World Poll, and this is actually very detailed in a book we released recently called uh, Blind Spot. And the blind spot really is the global rise of unhappiness. So in a series of questions, we asked people if they've experienced positive or negative uh, experiences in the, in the day before the survey. Have you experienced a lot of worry, anger, sadness, happiness, joy, et cetera, et cetera. What we find globally is that there's been a rise in unhappiness really across the globe. Um, and it's not because of COVID. Yes, unhappiness. So whether it's anger, stress, worry, physical pain, all of those things have been on a steady increase, not only in particular regions of the world dramatically, but really at the at the global level, at the aggregate level. Um, and blind spots a really great place for those of you who are interested in megatrends and kind of what do you learn polling the world. It was a place where we wanted to bring together all of those mega findings. But I think the most prescient now and the most critical now is the global rise of unhappiness. In the U.S., we just dropped our record high in people who say they are experiencing depression or have been treated for depression. So the U.S. is very consistent with the the global trend, but it is a mega trend, not a great one to share, but but one that's there. For yeah, sure. according to the, those numbers, uh, the percentage of U.S. adults who report having been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime, 29%, nearly one in three Americans, that is uh, 10 points higher than it was just about a decade ago. Um, to what, though, do we attribute that to also just more openness culturally about talking about that? I, I was curious about that because, you know, you guys do your best to pull when you try to then try to come up with the underlying reasons as to why people feel that way. Sometimes there are larger trends at play, right? Larger culture, cultural things at play Absolutely. that could explain the numbers. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just mental health in general, uh, that you were know, to talk about COVID, that is one of the things really that COVID changed. I mean, the more open nature, um, at least here in the U.S., around discussions of mental health and depression and anxiety, it has changed. And it probably is impacting the degree to which people are willing to admit or acknowledge uh, that they're facing that challenge. But, you know, with at least with global rise of unhappiness, that's not necessarily the case all over the world. Um, so that theory kind of holds true, I think, for some of the change. Uh, but when you look at things like social media consumption and mm. its impact on mental health, so many of the other things we know is are changing in our society. Um, it's not a surprise that that number's on the rise. And it also ties really to, to hybrid work. I mean, one of the number, the number one reason people don't want to go to work every single day in an office is traffic and its impact on their well-being. So when you think about depression and anxiety and stress, um, all of these things now, like you're saying, become intimately tied into why these shifts are happening and kind of tying it to one thing um, becomes very difficult, especially in terms of drawing out like there's cognition. a poll that comes out every year that's typically well covered the world happiness numbers. Right. And Finland likes to tout that they're the world's happiest country. Um, what, what, what do you make of those numbers or when you're saying general unhappiness? They, Finland might be the world's happiest country, and then there's number two and number three. But generally speaking, everyone's number has slightly gone down. Are we grading on a curve, so to speak? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, so the World Happiness Report um, is, that's all based on the World Poll, the same survey, the global survey we've been talking about. Um, and yes, Scandinavian countries tend to rate higher on that metric. Now, the, the, the challenge is that survey really doesn't measure happiness. It measures life evaluation. Mm. It asks people basically to answer two questions. And they're both the same, a scale of zero to 10, where zero is the worst life you could imagine living. 10 is the best. Rate your life today and rate where you think you'll be in five years. And based on people's numeric response to those two answers, they're placed into one of three categories. Thriving are people who rate their lives at seven or eight, respectively, and higher. Um, suffering are people who rate their lives at four or low or below. Um, so what we're, we're looking at when we talk about global happiness is really that rate of thriving, that rate of people who are evaluating their lives at a seven today and higher or eight uh, and higher for the future. Now, that's not the only way to measure life evaluation, and it's certainly not the only way to measure happiness. So what we find with those metrics, Mo, is they do tend to correlate very strongly with um, your financial mm -hmm. situation. So surprise, surprise, Northern Europe, uh, GDP per capita is Some of the richest countries of in the world, including Norway, I think the richest, yeah. yeah. So that metric, it's very true, and it does follow that trend. Now, we also ask all these other questions uh, with the global rise of unhappiness. So have you experienced a lot of stress, worry, anger, the positive and negative affect? questions is what they're called in psychology. Those countries, the highest on those countries are very different. Um, and the, the region actually that has the most um, positive and negative experiences is actually Latin America. And it's consistently been that way ever since we started the global poll. Um, actually, in terms of positive experiences, Latin Americans are always the top region which some of us like to joke and say they have the most fun. So they have the um, highest highs and lowest low. lows in Latin America. Exactly. Um, so they're experiencing, expressing that much. You mentioned Singapore. Singapore is a country that traditionally has the lowest on both. They don't have high negative they or live high in a five. positive. If you ask about their emotions, but when you ask about the life evaluation, they fall much more in line with the GDP kind of like correlated metrics. So it just depends on what you mean by happiness. Um, and it depends on, you know, how you ask the, the question. I just came back from Ethiopia, Mo, just a couple of weeks ago and um, was trying to interview people there and was uh, talking with my interpreter. And I was talking, I was trying to get a sense from some of them about uh, concern or worry. And they're like, culturally here among many people in Ethiopia, we don't like to express that we're worried about something. Uh, and I find that so fascinating because here in the U.S., like, we're more than happy talking about our concern, our worry. In fact, sometimes Absolutely. I think we overstate it, depending, and we'll get to that in a second. And so I just find that so interesting because, like, so how do you gauge in a country like Ethiopia or other places where culturally you're not supposed to express to somebody else that you're concerned about something, that you're supposed to be optimistic? And that's exactly why, Mo, we don't just ask one question or ask about people's lives in one way, because we know that these nuances are absolutely true. I mean, that's even true, really, in the U.S., like in some culture. I grew up in L.A. In L.A., it's totally okay to talk about how you feel and what's bothering you constantly. Um, in other parts of the country, it's, you know, it's not really acceptable or it's looked down upon. It's just all of these cultural nuances determine how we answer these questions. And that's why we need to always be testing what the question's really doing with this population. And we do. Um, so in Ethiopia, for example, 
are the folks who are, um, you know, conducting surveys on the ground for us are local Ethiopians that understand um, that dynamic. One of the most fascinating ones for me and Mo, you will, I think I'm trying to get you to laugh here, uh, is what I call the Alhamdulillah mm-hmm. complex for people who are from the Arabic speaking world. So you ask people like, are you satisfied with your life? Saying no in many of the cultures in the Middle East, it's kind of blasphemous to say, I'm not satisfied with my life. Like God is providing all these things for you. You need to show appreciation and thankfulness. It's a very traditional Wait, translate so alhamdulillah say, for people. Uh, all praise yeah. is due to God. So if you go to the Arabic speaking part of the world, you ask people like, how are you doing? Everybody, the right answer is alhamdulillah. So you see a dude, he, he lost a shoe, he's on the ground, his knee's bleeding. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah. He has to, or else you're a complainer. So there's just all this social pressure about saying, yes, I'm satisfied with my life. So when we were doing, and we still do, polling in Iraq, like at the some of the worst, most dangerous times to be an Iraqi citizen, satisfaction rates were like not yeah. changing. And in our polls, we're like, what's going on, dude? Like, how how is it possible that people in this environment can say they're satisfied? Well, it's so interesting lives? because one of the numbers that I took away from the World Happiness Index was out of Ukraine where the numbers didn't shift over 2022 as the country went to war and was being invaded by Russia. Yeah. And that, and what was fascinating, um, you know, I mentioned our polling in Afghanistan. Our polling in Ukraine this year was absolutely some of the most important work we've done. We're going to, we're polling again. We're actually in the field now. Ukraine's fascinating because even though it's a war zone, it's connected enough to where you can reach people on cell phones. Right. I was going to say about 15% of the country is occupied by Russia right now. Absolutely. So you want to talk about an environment where you need to be careful about what you're asking people. And you also, of course, need to be careful about how you interpret the data, right? Um, If I'm asking people on the front lines of a war, how they feel about the leadership of the opposing country, you know, that's going to be a complicated question to answer. But I can ask them about like, you know, how is it going? How have you been impacted? Um, Has anyone in your family directly like lost their lives or been injured? Have you moved around since the war? So those are all things you could imagine are, you know, pretty safe to answer. Yeah, just avoid the question of blame, right? Whose fault is it? Yeah. Exactly. Um, But one of, so one of the kind of general trends that we saw in those data that we got, and they were um, just around the time of the tail end of the last offensive by the Ukrainians. Um, It was essentially a rally around the flag factor. Um, um, Ukrainians were extremely positive on their leadership through the roof on their military. Um, they wanted to, you know, we gave them option of like, do you want to see the war end as soon as possible? Or do you want to kind of, you want the country to keep fighting to get back all territory? You know, the further you moved away from the front line, the more people wanted the war to go on. Um, so a lot of the data really reinforced what you would expect of a country that's, you know, under attack, but uh, holding up more than they and anybody in the world really thought they would. Uh, the data really reflected that. It'll be really critical to see this time to what degree that's been, you know, worn down by the time that's passed with the war. Um, it's also going to be really interesting to see when this counteroffensive starts and when our polling is going to coincide with that, because that'll absolutely be a factor. How do you account for all the displaced people? And like, I mean, now you have a certain percentage of the population that no longer lives inside the country. Are you trying to pull the several million Ukrainians now who now live in Eastern Europe and around the world? We're not. We're not. So we have a, our our study is designed to be a household survey. Um, so what we're trying to do is reach households and then find out: Are you displaced as a household mm-hmm. member? 
Um, there are a, a lot of other approaches um, that organizations like us and others take to really quantify like who went where. One of the things though we do, Mo, is we ask every country in that region and then the world attitudes about migrants coming into the country. So sort of migrant acceptability attitudes. And what we found since the Ukrainian, you know, influx of uh, citizens into all of those neighboring countries is that migrant acceptance actually improved dramatically in many of those countries. So at least so we we're in the first question, year here and you haven't seen any resentment built. It's actually been the opposite because some of those countries, I won't mention names, have actually some of the lowest scores on our migrant acceptance index. So it was a really good example. I know you're super familiar with the Syria uh, yeah. diaspora situation. It was a great example of countries that have had a lot of migrants coming from a different part of the world, not being so open to them. But then when it shifted to be Ukrainians, those attitudes really shifted. So I'll, I'll, I'll um, leave the interpretation of why that is uh, to other folks, though you can make certain assumptions. Um, I, I want to head back here, though. You mentioned earlier trust in institutions being at a, at a low, and I know this is something that Gallup has been looking at, certainly something that um, I'm hyper aware of in the media. In 2022, your numbers showed the highest percentage in 50 years reported no confidence at all in the news media. And by the way, as you were speaking earlier about like, well, not all polls are the same, polling, polling, polling's bad. I had the same feeling about the media. Not all the media is the same, but we tend to like to poll because for simplicity, the media. Talk about the Absolutely. media, even though not all the media is built equally. Talk to me about these trust numbers when it comes to the news media. Well, I just want to take a pause here and um, acknowledge the potentially hilarious situation. We are two guys from the Middle East that are going to start complaining about the media. <laughs> and that's there's no more traditional, stereotypical. But that said, um, look, uh, perceptions, there's no, there's no way to deny that trust in news in America has declined dramatically. I think the most dramatic long-term data point really is to take it back to Nixon. When Nixon was being impeached, seven in 10 Americans said they had a great deal of confidence in the honesty of news in the country. Today, that seven in 10 is closer to like a 38%. It's not even And we should say contextually, it came partially due, I mean, his downfall comes partially due to the media, right? The media discovers Watergate. You have the Washington Post reporting, Woodward and Bernstein, et cetera. And so that was a time where the media was uncovering the Pentagon Papers. There was a whole bunch of coverage of Vietnam, you know, basically drawing skepticism, uh, basically overturning things the government had been telling the population. And so there was this feeling among the populace, at least, that, oh, I, I can trust the media because the government's been lying to me. Yeah. And they just took, you know, just watch them take down the most powerful person right. in the world uh, just simply by reporting, you know, information that that they got access to. So, yeah, it was a really high point for them. Um, but does that mean all is lost? No. I mean, a lot of other things that are happening with news consumption in the U.S. still leave room for hope. So how, are we, you know, when it comes to mass media, are figures the same as they were in the 70s? No. But are people not consuming news? Absolutely not. They've just kind of shifted their behavior to following public figures more for news. Um, and what's really interesting, we talk a lot about, you know, these larger than life characters now in in national news who are reporters, but also celebrities. And, you know, I kind of follow the person. I don't follow the platform. What's really fascinating is that even though we know that nine in 10 Americans say they follow a public figure to know what's going on in the world, a lot of times that public figure can be a comedian, they can be an artist, they can be an activist, not a journalist. Um, but 
where they're going for those insights from those public figures are still the traditional platforms. So it's still TV. It's still, you know, the online newspapers. So even though trust in media has shifted, behaviors around media consumption are adjusting to those attitudes. It's not like everyone is just completely plugging out and no longer interested in news. Quite the contrary, right? Speaking um, anecdotally, I mean, we're on a platform that is a great example of folks uh, who saw trust in media really collapsing and tried to create a different mm-hmm. space, uh, a, a space that really addressed those concerns. Um, I was just talking this morning uh, with our, the researcher who led all that work. Uh, we have a great update on those this morning on our website. And her thing was telling me, uh, you know, we've documented that trust in news has declined. This is Dr. Sarah Fironi. Um, but what actually builds trust in news? Why don't we study the activities like on Mo News and, and other uh, platforms? Are these activities really building back trust in news? And what is it that they are doing that's helping with that? I know a lot of people feel like investigative journalism, you know, media's got to get back to investigative journalism. And that's, that's what's going to build back trust in news. But I think a lot of us have focused too long on the fact that trust has declined and not enough on what builds it back. It's also very unfair to talk about this outside of the context of this larger lack of confidence in institutions generally. Right. I was going to say it comes at the same time, you know, like I, I kind of track it to and and maybe, you know, you can help me with the date here. But, you know, to the WMD Iraq thing, right, that suddenly yeah. this was a this was a case where the government put forward the theory that uh, Saddam had nukes and was developing these weapons. We got to go to war in Iraq. This stuff was leaked to major media institutions. The New York Times went with it on the front page. The Washington Post went with it on the front page. Colin Powell's of the UN, et cetera. It turns out that there were no WMD. And over the course of the past two decades, you've seen this loss of trust in, you know, whether it's the, the White House or the FBI or the CIA or the CDC and the FDA in the case of, of COVID, et cetera. Um, and and the media that they've and the Supreme Court is something we've been talking about too, uh, especially in the in the wake of Roe v. Wade among people who disagreed with that decision and the various things that have come out. It seems like no institution, at least in when we look at America, is immune from this loss of trust. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know the Iraq War. Um, it's hard. You know, I, I, it's hard not to acknowledge the role that that played in people really putting, you know, their trust in something and then discovering, oh, we should have asked more questions or we should have been Right, more, we spent trillions of dollars, 20 that. years, uh, lives lost uh, in America and Iraq. Uh, you know, the whole country went into a war. It literally invaded and took over a country and it turned out to be on false pretenses. But again, Mo, then, then I'll, I, you'll be fascinated with this. It's not new. Every single Well, I guess Vietnam is the same America. way. The Spanish-American war was the same way. I mean, we could keep going back. Right? Well, and, I'll, and, I'll just, and just speaking from our, our, our data, really, the Gallup data, like every conflict since World War II, with the exception of the first Persian Gulf War, every single one of those conflicts basically started off on the right side of public opinion. And by the time the war was ending, most people thought it was a mistake. So it's also the Iraq, what happened with the Iraq war was also part of a cycle that's been going on in the United States and with the news media. I think what made it different is the ability of non-established journalists and platforms to really start challenging right. that um, and, ri- and raising really awareness into how much of a miss that was. It's hard to find somebody these days, um, 
you know, that's not, unless it's for like ideological reasons, that's like, yeah, you know, that was a great decision by the United States. Um, Most Americans think it was a mistake. Most Americans, actually, one of the tragic things is for the first time, as the U.S. was pulling out of Afghanistan and that disastrous withdrawal at Kabul, um, it was the first time most Americans also saw that war as a mistake. Um, And that was really, Afghanistan was the exception to that statistic I mentioned, because most Americans still thought it was worth you know, right, because involved. the premise there was that's where bin Laden was, that's where, you know, 9-11 happened and, you know, and that we had a certain obligation to uh, help the country and prevent something like that from happening in the future. It struck me recently, uh, Mohammed, looking at your poll as Biden began his reelection, that he begins his reelection at the lowest point, uh, effectively the lowest point in modern history, save for Ronald Reagan in 83 and I think people forget this. Ronald Reagan began uh, also in the high 30% approval rating. As he began his reelection, he would go on, of course, to uh, dominate in the 84 campaign. And by the way, another parallel had age concerns. Now, he was younger, uh, respectively, than Biden, but they both begin their reelection as the oldest president at that time uh, in the high 30% uh, area. But looking at overall numbers, and again, having covered this for a couple decades now, just how partisan things are. There was a time not so long ago, post 9-11, as we bring that up again, where Bush could have, you know, two thirds, three quarters of the country support him. Um, and it feels like sort of after that, whether you're the Obama era, the Trump era, or the Biden era, there's nothing more than 50-50. Like, you're on your team, you fly the flag, you fly a blue flag or a red flag. and Will we ever go back to an era of, you know, where a president can gain two thirds of the country's approval? Yeah. And that's that's really I love how you put your finger right on the issue. Um, You know, President Biden came into office with really one grand mission, which was sort of to unite the country. Right. To get us beyond uh, COVID. Return us to those glorious those old days when, you know. Yes. America's back. America's back, right? Um, and really, that hasn't happened. I mean, when you look at the data, and you nailed it, it really wasn't Trump. It was Obama, Trump, and Biden are three terms now where presidential approval has increasingly become partisan in its divide. What does that mean? There are fewer and fewer and fewer people from the opposing side that will approve of the job the president is doing. Um so that margin is just getting worse and worse for the country. Uh, the other thing is the favorability ratings of both parties are not great. And the rate of people who are identifying as independents is at a relative high. It's at 40% right now. Now, of course, you have leaners. And you know when you really press people, they might give you a different answer. One of the things, Mo, I think that is really underreported on this point is that unlike just the general up and down of people identifying as independents, young people today are sticking with their independent identification longer than young people in previous generations. So if I am um, 18 to 25 uh, or 18 to 30, compared to like 30 years ago, what we see is people tend to say they're independent when they're younger. And then as they get older, they kind of pick a side, if you will, or at least pick um, an identification. But young people are sticking more with that independent mindset or identification. Um, it is also a relative high of people saying that they want a third right. party in the United States. Um, but of course, you know, America's 
where all of us are famous for saying, do you want more? Yeah, I want more, you know, but how do you get there is a lot more arduous than just- Well, that's the big, that's the big question I get. I mean, more and more people are like, I can't believe this election is shaping up to be Biden v. Trump again. The two oldest men to ever run for president, two men who uh, more Americans don't favor than favor. And by the way, we saw that in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. So now we've gone through several cycles now where Americans- The least popular people in public life are running for office. I mean, that's literally one way to look at it. When you talk about the favorability rating of Secretary Clinton or President Trump or President Biden, their favorability ratings are really, really in the dumps. I mean, very few people have a favorable view of them. Very few people in America have a favorable view of Washington. National government, you know, we talk about institutions of the past. One of the things that everyone knows is Americans are really down on national government. But what a lot of people don't know is that's not the case with local government. So Americans aren't like ready to burn the place down. They just want to burn Washington down. Uh, Exactly. Because when you ask about corruption in local government, it's actually not a big problem. Corruption at the national level majorities say corruption is widespread. I'm sorry, this is the viewpoint of Americans. We're not sitting here, you and me, saying there's no corruption at a local level, but the perception of corruption. It's relatively much lower than at the national level. So the question we ask is, is corruption widespread in government? We ask about Washington and then local government. We also ask about um, you know, the effectiveness of local mm-hmm. government. Do you trust your governor, your mayor, et cetera, to make decisions that are fundamentally in the best interest of the public or fundamentally in their own personal interests? Those data are basically the inverse for what you find with Washington vis-a-vis local government. And again, it's not like local government's great and it's euphoria, but the idea that Americans are mad at their government or are ready to tear the place down or like the, the, you know, the Trump, Bernie Sanders kind of grievances getting loud and that's populism is taking over. A lot of that really is a national dynamic. But the local dynamic is very, very different. So we head now, as we speak, we have about 18 months till a general election in America. You know, one of the joys of America is we have the longest elections <laughs> in the Western world. Um, and I'm curious as to, you know, I know you guys are constantly polling economic indicators and, and happiness, et cetera. What are some of the uh, numbers that everyone should be looking at to get a gauge, I mean, it's going to be the top line number. Are you going to vote for Biden or Trump? Are you going to vote for DeSantis or Trump? Whatever, fine. But what are some of the other numbers in terms of uh, how people are living their lives or feeling about their lives that you feel are accurate indicators of where this election might be going? Well, I mean, just to be specific with both. So yeah, we're not going to be forecasting who's going to win this next matchup, but we are definitely going to ask people about the process how they feel about the process. Do they trust the process? But my answer to your question is some of the most telling questions for me will be, how do you plan to vote? And when do you plan Mm -hmm. to vote? Are you voting in the mail? Are you voting Because that's become so partisan. And it's completely changed after COVID. COVID, there was this explosion, of course, of people voting in another form than just walking up to their local high school or whatever and putting in a ballot. But, um, those are those factors are really going to determine who is the likely voter, if you will, in that likely voter model for the people. Who right. They actually, talk about that. So not all polls are equal. Not all uh, people you poll are equal. There's Americans, there's registered voters, and then there's likely voters. Yes. So and they're defined differently by different organizations. Um, uh, obviously, a general public poll is just Americans generally. Um, you could also ask people if they are registered to vote. 
And then you can ask people, did they vote in the last election? And that's where it gets super helpful in figuring out who's actually likely to vote. But again, Mo, that was true in the 90s. I don't know if it's true today, right? America's really changing and who votes is really changing. Um, So a lot of the challenge with trying to get ahead of the election and figure out who's going to win is many of the presumptions we have made or that the premises we bring into that analysis are now changing. And is our forecasting taking into account those changes? Are our models taking into account that the likely voter of 2024 looks very different than the likely voter of 1994? Um, Because that's going to be all the difference in your act. Well, we also saw record turnout in the last election, so it'll be interesting to see whether that continues. Uh, And when I say last, I mean the last presidential in 2020. Um, One thing you told me about earlier, and I think this is probably the most popular question I get, Mo, and love you to explain, why should I trust a poll when I see that you have, like in the Biden approval level, you polled 1,013 adults, 1,000 people in a country of 350 million, and you were telling me before that 90-something percent of people don't pick up the phone anymore. Why should we trust those numbers? How does that work? Well, there are a few reasons why you should trust those numbers. Um, First of all, those numbers are constantly being tested against real-life outcomes to make sure they're actually capturing what we're measuring. So even though we're not forecasting an election, it doesn't mean we're not testing the accuracy of those metrics, whether it's using economic indicators, whether it's using election outcomes, all kinds of situations where you can test the accuracy of that. An incidence rate um, is gathered across a lot of different behaviors in society, and there's great data on a lot of them, and you can test that. Um, so that's that's one factor. The 1,000, I thought you were going to say, like, isn't that too few people? Um, and it is not a lot of people in 300 million. What's really important to keep in mind, though, is it's very similar to taking a blood sample. If you want to know how my body's doing, you don't necessarily need to take a huge amount of blood to test and figure out, like, what's going on with Mo's, you know, white blood cell levels. You do need to accurately capture a sample. If you contaminate that sample, if you use a dirty needle, if the container you're putting the blood in already has stuff in it that's messing up the results, you're definitely going to get bad data. So actually, polling is not so much about volume. It's more about representativeness. If you capture the right sample, you can, re- you can re- reach a very representative um, uh, projection of what the entire population would think and say. And these things have been, you know, tested rigorously over generations uh, in the statistics uh, field. One of the things that's fascinating, though, is when you actually add more and more and more respondents, what the research shows is it doesn't make your data that much more accurate. It does, though, make it more useful in being able to look at more granular parts of society. So there are polls that we do at Gallup where we gather thousands and thousands and thousands of folks. you know, whether it's workplace research that we do, or we want to understand the dynamics with the LGBTQ community and how identification is changing. Right. I was going to say like those there smaller are, populations, like for example, like 12 of, 12% of America is black, right? So in that poll of a thousand adults, did you make sure to ensure that 120 of them were black and that were 300 yes, of them yeah. were Latino to capture the third of America that is that? It's not that flat of a like apple to apple ratio, but yes, absolutely. That's exactly the the concept is that that are the people I'm interviewing 
do they look the same as the population I'm saying they represent? So if you're doing a national poll, everything you said is absolutely true. Is, you know, are, is your sample really a representative sample for the population or are you just interviewing people who are high income, white, uh, with a corporate job sitting you know, on their phone somewhere? The other challenge is, for example, there's a lot of online polling now. We have the largest panel uh, of the, in the U.S. and we do. Right, tons that's become the standard polling. now. Online polling. Well, it dep- again, it depends on standard for what. Right? Sorry, so I was talking the, to the depend- like the the polling team at CBS and like at CBS yes. News, New York Times for their poll. They're mainly doing it online now, and that's a huge transition that's taking place. So one of the things, one of the advantages we have at Gallup is we really tackle this more as researchers than as ideologues. So as a researcher, you know that every tool, every methodology really has its pros and cons. Um, and we choose the methodology that's most efficient and useful based on sort of, you know, what we're after and, and what the objective of the, of the study is. So we do tons of polling online. Um, we tend to find that online polls in general are skewed more towards higher income um, not as minority representative and minorities that are in them tend to be more high income, higher and, education. And when we say so, online polls, we're not talking about you just putting up like a poll on Facebook. We're talking about like, there's a scientific, like no, you're getting a, a group of people. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a very detailed thing where I email Mo and I say, Hey Mo, we are Gallup. We're doing this poll. Do you want to be in our panel and be polled repeatedly on issues throughout the year? And depending on what I'm trying to do, I could poll him once a week or I could poll him once a year. Um, he can opt out. But yeah, it's very, very um, rigorous and and scientific uh, in its endeavor. It's not it's not a, a survey like that pops up as an ad on while you're scrolling the internet. So it's hard to separate presidential politics from the economy. There's a famous Clinton advisor, James Carville, who you'll still see on TV, who had the old bumper sticker adage: "It's the economy, stupid." That was his strategy for Bill Clinton in the early '90s, coming out of that recession uh, and helping to get him reelected. Uh, Gallup spends a lot of time trying to get a sense of financial hardship, the economy, how people feel about it, uh, especially in light of inflation recently. Absolutely. Um, one of the ways we do it monthly is we have an economic um, uh, confidence index where we ask people about the economy today and where they see it going. But inflation has really been where a lot of our data have been most telling. Um, today, uh, nearly half uh, of Americans it describe that in some way they're experiencing hardship because of inflation high cost of living, paying rent and mortgage. So the cost of living is definitely um, still a major factor. And what's really interesting is that despite the finance news cycle, you know, kind of taking a sigh of relief with the central bank slowing down interest rate hikes, in terms of Main Street, people are still really feeling that pain. Um, We also find that this bank scare has taken a toll on people's sense of the security of their own money. Half of Americans today say that they have some worry about the security of their deposits in banks, which is pretty fascinating. Talk about trust about. in institutions, um, right? We're talking about all these big institutions. Exactly. The bank and whether they have my money is now something people, some people doubt. And that's not just like a philosophical uh, you know, issue. Um, also, what we find is that those numbers are very similar to where we were at the very bottom of the 2008 recession. So while the banking um, industry has certainly rebounded and and is seeing record highs in some situations of profits, um, people's public trust in banks hasn't really improved since the Great Recession. Um, And we still see that with us today. Uh, So worry about the security of 
people's um, money in banks, um, perceptions of opportunities for investment have really dramatically changed. Americans right now are at a record low in saying that now is a good time to buy a house. Right. I saw those numbers. And then I'm like, wait, if you actually look at the market, you talk to brokers, Americans might be telling you that, Mo, but they're still out there buying. Well, and I think that really speaks to two things, right? The perceptions and the reactions to mortgage rates really climbing up dramatically right. in a very short period of time. But at the other end of the scale, we're still living with this historic um, shortage of housing that we have from the 208 recession. Um, on the Gal podcast, I had a great conversation um, with uh, a financier that broke it all down for us. I mean, we basically had a period of time in this country where new houses were not being built. And that's not just houses, like housing, apartments, et cetera. Um, and we haven't made up for that gap. So even though the mortgage rates are high, and if you're thinking about, is now a good time to go out and take a 30-year loan, and you're looking at what the rates were two years ago, that you know those data make a lot of sense. So, but so it's the inventory hand, thing. It's, it's that no matter what, no matter how few Americans uh, think it's a good time to buy a home, there's still so little inventory available, it doesn't really matter. Or it's probably still going to drive the, both dynamics at the same time. So people are going to be worried about interest rates, but you're still going to be able to sell if there's a, a record shortage and people can't find a place mm -hmm. to live. So I want to end here with uh, something you mentioned earlier that you, you're looking to rejigger things a little bit to try to get more productive outcomes. It's not just about polling the lack of trust and how everything sucks, right? Uh, but uh, being more solutions oriented. And so I, I want to end there in terms of the types of questions you're asking or how are you, how are you looking to approach that uh, even beyond the trust vertical uh, to get at, uh, you know, potentially being a guidebook to policymakers or to companies or to nonprofits um, when it comes to, all right, we have some problems in this country or in this world. Um, how do we go about solving them? Yeah, I love that question. It's essentially like, how do you decide what to ask? Um, and it's the hardest question we get, you know, like you can ask anything. Why would you ask Americans about X? One of the ways we really approach it, Mo, is we try to speak to the people on the front lines of these issues. So stakeholder interviews and focus groups with the folks that really are trying to figure out how do you reform the tax situation in America? Does the IRS really need to be reformed? What are the pain points of people in paying taxes? I just picked that you know, out of a hat. But really having a constant research agenda of having those conversations and making sure those are informing the questions we ask the public. The other thing is the public doesn't have a lot of the answers on these challenges. Um, but, but what they do is really have a great insight into how those challenges are impacting them at a local and granular level. So a lot of times policy conversations are at this 50,000 foot mark um, where primarily it's consumed by the latest buzzword in the industry, trying to figure that out. I mean, quiet quitting is a great mm. example. Suddenly quiet quitting, we're like everywhere. We've been polling on employee engagement for decades. Um, and essentially it is quiet quitting. It's basically going to a job, doing the bare minimum um, and not really seeing your future potential growth in that position. Is that an economic issue? Is that a social issue? It used to just be an HR issue. Um, the way we started asking about it was working with HR executives uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago and trying to figure out what are the challenges you all are facing. So part of it is doing your homework, 
Um, and just as a research organization, understanding that we're constantly being disrupted. AI is a great example. We're now in the process of figuring out how do we set a series of questions about AI that can track how Americans or anyone feels about it 10, 20, 30 years from yeah. now. Um, you can see how those questions are going to be very different than like, you know, what do you think about ChatGBT? Did you use it last week? Those questions aren't going to be useful in 20 years, but AI is probably still going to be with us and it's still going to be disrupting society. So we'll talk to folks who are in that space, whether they're building these tools, whether they are training uh, uh, people in the workforce to use them and how to navigate, you know, that employment disruption in those industries. But without really going out and doing the work, um, you end up only asking questions that are going to get really clickable headlines. Um, and then you find yourself back in the situation of like, can we trust the polls? So it's, if you're not, if you're following an organization's polling, that's really not doing that deeper research, you know, mix it up a little bit and come check us out. I was going to say, asking those questions now, now I'm like wondering if, uh, who asked the question in the early nineties about, do you see a cell phone being useful? Uh, how do you see yourself using the internet? Do you think that'll be a part of your life? Yeah. We have all, you probably it's have so that cool, data, but We right? have all those data. I mean, I can literally come on here, like in a few weeks, we we'll go through all the old data. It's, it's amazing. Like, do you think cell phones are going to be a thing? You know, how, at what point did people realize that this is actually going to take Mo, over? What's so interesting. One of the first stories I wrote for my college paper in 2000 at GW, the front page story, and we were going through this as we were moving recently. Um, we found the front page story, uh, call asking, uh, students on campus, are you gonna get a cell phone this year? Like, it seems to be a thing now. Um, in the year 2000. And it's like, you look at it now, you're like, I can't even imagine that was a choice. And you see quotes from some students being like, oh, I don't need to be tracked like that. Like they can just leave me a voicemail. That's 20 years. Yeah. Ago. Yep. Yep. And it's like, at what, yeah. And at what point do we fold? Right. Because I mean, we still know that that's true, right? They are tracked. I mean, whatever, like we are being tracked. You're definitely giving up your privacy and people identified that so long ago, but something shifted and suddenly everybody was okay with that. So much more to talk about. Uh, I look forward to having you back. Uh, thank you for, I, I think you messaged me on Twitter. We, and it's one of the more useful things uh, uh, that I've experienced on Twitter in the past couple of months was you reaching out. So I'm glad we connected. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, there's no shortage of interest in polls. And so I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Mo, before we go, how do people track what you guys are doing? Uh, you can come to news.gallup.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter front page, or you can listen in to our podcast, the Gallup Podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having us. All right. I want to thank Mohammed again for that really interesting conversation. You can stay up to date on all things Gallup is doing over at news.gallup.com. Before we go here, I want to thank everyone who has joined Mo News Premium. Incredible numbers these past few weeks. I'm so grateful to all of you. If you haven't joined already, please consider doing so. It'll give you early access and exclusive episodes on a members-only podcast feed, as well as members-only Instagram account. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, grow what we're doing, and support independent journalism. And the added plus, of course, is all the extra content on the various feeds. Right now, you can get it for only $7 a month or $70 a year. We're offering the annual package with two months free right now. There's also a lifetime subscription if you're interested. You can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. Again, that is mo.news slash premium. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon.